thought I was kidding this morning, and if you're, this is your, um, if this is your first time here, hi, I'm Tony, I'm one of the guys. Yesterday, what we've been talking about is wise love. That's what we've been talking about. And um, in the midst of a conversation with a friend, uh, we were doing wiring together. We, my, I think I mentioned last week, my poor wife has dealt with our kitchen being torn down to the studs for about 14 months. And uh, so a friend of mine has been coming to help me finish some wiring up, and my son was in helping us uh, tear the vents out and put new vents in and all the things that have to come with that. And in the middle of, um, am, I going, am I breaking out? Am I? Oh, it's going to be one of those mornings this morning. You know, in the midst of the morning conversation as we're fiddling with the wiring and doing everything that we need to do, um, we were talking about something, and I don't remember where the story was going, so I guess it doesn't matter. So <laughs> I think we're just exhausted because we've been having to put up with each other for the course of the last week, um, early mornings and long, arduous things that we were doing. And I was mentioning that I was really struggling with what is going on with my microphone? Hmm. Start, am I on yet? Can you guys hear me? Testing one, two, three. Brand new batteries. It's not on me this time. It usually is. Like, it's not on my sound guy either. He's, you know, we've had minions attacking the soundboard recently. <laughs> not the little yellow ones either. Those are cute. These ones are not as pretty. So I was talking to this friend of mine, and I was talking about the fact that... Um, I just really feel it's essential that we somehow learn to receive God's love for what it is. Mm, let me say that again. That we somehow learn to receive God's love for what it is. Because I think the great struggle we have as Americans in particular is the hurried life that we live keeps us from actually slowing down and receiving what it is that God has to offer us. And that's the essence of his person, the expression of his heart, and he only does that in the quiet and the slow places. So what I realized was, in the midst of this conversation, is what God was asking me to share was this idea that Jesus, wanting to love us wisely, needed to go away. Which is an irony to me. Because for me, selfishly, if I'm gonna love somebody and spend time with them and build into them and have walk with them, I don't wanna let them go. I, I want to hold tight. I do. Yesterday, we had the privilege of burying a 36-year-old man. Now, let me say that again. Yesterday, we had the privilege of burying a 36-year-old man, father of one, who, in the midst of my relationship with this young man, taught me to love. Let me say that again. He taught me to love. You know why and how he taught me to love? He was probably the most cantankerous human being I've ever met in my entire life. And one minute you'd have more laughs and fun with him than you could possibly imagine, the next minute you had him down on the ground choking him to death because you wanted to kill him. And what, came, what dawned on all of us as we were doing the funeral yesterday was this young man who kind of was all over the map emotionally and all over the map relationally and all, just, just all over the map, probably understood God's love better than any of us because it was very evident by his life that he knew there was no possible way for him to earn it. There's no possible way that he deserved it. There's no possible way in his fickle life, his inconsistencies, that he could have done anything to merit God's love. And it was sad to me that it took his death for me to realize that in such a profound way. But in death, there's life. Didn't we just sing that? And in Jesus' death, there's life. And in his going away, there was an incredible presence. We're just struggling with that, aren't we? What? Oh, hey. <laughs> I almost started singing some... Uh, Def Leppard there for a moment. All right, so, here, so here's my point in all of this. And frankly, I think it's wonderfully poignant that my mic didn't work this morning and the technology failed and, and nothing is going to go right. You know why? Welcome to life. <laughs> Welcome to reality. 
What I, the reason I wanted to give us extra time this morning to, to, to mingle is because I wanted us to see how hard it is to spend five minutes talking to somebody. How hard it is to walk and meet somebody. How hard it is to try to fill five minutes with some sort of engagement. That's hard, isn't it? It was hard to fill five minutes. It's not really because it's hard to do that. It's because we don't. We just don't. What I want for this weekend, frankly, and we had a wonderful time last night, and the wonderful time certainly was seeing Jesus and reading the Word and doing those things, but part of it was just spending time quietly in the Word together. Just being. Because frankly, to me, that's a big part of church. It's a big part of relationships. It's a big part of being introduced to somebody and learning to engage with somebody. It's a big part, frankly, of feeling a little uncomfortable because you know what Jesus does to all of us all the time? It is his desire to make us uncomfortable. Jesus never wants us comfortable. Oh, what a weird concept that is, right? But the whole point of sanctification is for us to take a step every day, every moment of every day toward discomfort, being stretched beyond our capacity, being pushed beyond our ability, having our character tested and forged. So welcome to discomfort. Loving, wise discomfort. So, here we go. You need your notes, you need the Bible, all right? So, the Bible you're gonna need, the book in the Bible, we're gonna look at a couple things. What I wanna look at today is this, I wanna look at Jesus' sacrifice. I wanna look at his sacrifice. Now, it's Communion Sunday, and we think, okay, well, the sacrifice is obviously the, the cross and, the, and, and his, his having died for us. And I'm going to say to you, nay, nay. I'm going to say that's the apex of his sacrifice. That's, that's where his sa- In fact, I believe Jesus is still sacrificing, and I'll explain that in a moment. But the apex of his sacrifice was the cross. His, his sacrifice began well, well, well before that. So go to Genesis chapter 2, if you would. Actually, make it Genesis 3. Make it Genesis 2. Let's go to Genesis 2. Maybe even Genesis 1. Genesis 2. We're going to start at verse 4, and I'm going to pray before we read. Father, we thank you for your word, and pray, Jesus, that you would recognize, help us recognize who you are and your incredible wise love and your sacrificial nature, and that your sacrifice, any sacrifice, is the expression of your affection toward us, that you would give yourself, that you would give of yourself, Help us to realize that, embrace it, engage with it, receive it for what it is, that you, my God, love us in spite of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 2, chapter four, or two verse 4 says this. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on it and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, and the Lord formed the man. And the Lord formed the man. Now I'm going to stop here for a minute. It says in Ephesians something wonderful. It says it's talking about God's manifold wisdom. In other words, God's revealing of himself to mankind over the course of time as he was ready to reveal and men were ready to receive. And so right here at the beginning of creation, we're going to see something that connects us to Ephesians, and this is what it says. It says, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice was planned before the creation of all things. Before the foundations of the world were set, God and his wisdom and his manifest wisdom and, his, and, the, the, and desiring to lavish his grace upon us before time was created, set this plan in motion. And here's the beginning of the plan. Here's where the plan begins to take shape. And this is what I want us to understand. That Jesus' sacrifice started well before the cross. I think it started the moment this plan formulated in the mind of God. God doesn't respond to what's happening on the earth. He isn't reactionary. God orchestrates. God sets things in motion. Now, he responds to mankind in the sense that we reciprocate affection and love and grace and mercy and all the things that come from God. But the fact of the matter is, is this plan was wise and it was eternal, which means it was in the heart and the mind and the soul of God, in the imagination of God and the wisdom of God. It is the expression of the very love of God. And he knew that the wisest and most profound and most effective way for him to reveal himself to us was through this plan. And it was set into motion before time began. 
And therefore he knew us, each one of us, and us as a whole. He knew us before he ever set this into motion. And this is what I want us to imagine. And some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I think it's one of the most profound moments in all of Scripture. Look what it says now. Verse 7 says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust. He formed the man from the dust. He gathered the dust. He, he sculpted it together. I can imagine him spitting into the, <laughs> spitting into the dirt and, and allowing it to become pliable and to make it into clay, and it, it began to form. Look what it goes on to say now. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he what? And he breathed. Now stop for a minute, because here's what I think happened probably before he breathed. I think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they stood above the body of Adam in the midst of the garden and all the things that had just been created, waiting for the plan to unfold. They turned to each other and they said to the Son, are you ready for this? Because the moment he gasped, the moment his lungs fill, the moment Adam comes to life, the scars form on your wrists, on your feet, on your head, on your back. Jesus' sacrifice started way before the cross. It started when he submitted himself to the Father's will and the Father's purposes and the Father's plan and the Father's wisdom. And he said, I will do it. And he did that with us in mind. So in, 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 in Hebrews, when it says the joy set before him helped him endure the cross, that joy was not momentary. That joy was his seeing all of eternity and the expression of his Father's wisdom. And he, he was nailed to the cross, and he remembered the moment Adam breathed first, and he was looking forward to the moment we'd all be gathered together. And this was the joy of Christ Jesus. This was the manifold wisdom of God. This is, listen, this is wise love. God's expression of it. See, more than anything today, you know what I want to focus on? Jesus. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Paul actually takes this and he expounds upon it. So we're in Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 3. Because 3 is the expression of Jesus' attitude. Even though it's a command to us, what it is is a mirror reflection of Jesus and what he's done. This is the person of Jesus doing exactly what his father had planned. Look what it says. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Stop. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is the essence of the heart of Christ. This is the essence of the acts of Christ. This is the essence of Jesus himself, his person, his character, his nature. This is it. By submitting himself to the Father's plan, by submitting himself to this wise love, what he was saying was, I will do nothing of my own. I will not take this upon myself. In fact, I will be humble, and I will do nothing out of vain conceit. How do we know? Look what it goes on to say. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but now in humility do what? What's that next word? What is the next word? Consider, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy. We're still in Philippians 2. Did I not say that? Okay, all right. And we're verse what? Three and four? Did I not tell you the verse? Sometimes I don't. My ADD just pops my head. I was good. Okay, so here we go. Look at it. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility do what? What's this next word? Consider. Take into account. Didn't we just talk about that last week? The art of being considerate. That in order for us to, because two weeks ago we talked about it being prudent. Last week I thought, you know what, I never taught us how to develop prudence. And the idea of developing prudence is the ability to take into consideration. And what Jesus did in sitting down with the Father and the Holy Spirit and going through this manifold wisdom, this expression of God's wise love to mankind before time ever began, Jesus had to take into consideration whether or not he could do this, whether or not he would do this. He had to take into consideration the ramifications of this and the consequences of it. He had to take into consideration once this ball was set in motion, once this thing, once the dominoes began to fall, where would they end up? 
And again, Hebrews 12 is the, is, is the beautiful apex of this moment where as he's hanging on the cross, he says, there's a joy set before me. I see the dominoes falling. Here is the next domino. And when these... Dow! And that last domino will be him coming and scooping us up and taking us to the kingdom. But it all began when Jesus Christ did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but instead in humility considered his Father, considered the Spirit, considered us. He took that into consideration and he loved us wisely. He did not act rashly. He was not reactionary, but instead he took us into consideration and he was prudent. Because you cannot be wise if you are not prudent. And you cannot be prudent if you are not considerate. And you cannot be considerate if you are not humble. That's a brutal path. That's an extremely difficult path. We looked last week at how difficult that path is to attain. Not because God is hiding, not because wisdom is not to be found, but because our flesh doesn't want it. Because our flesh wants vain. Our flesh wants what it wants. Our flesh does not want to consider others as being better than ourselves. Our flesh doesn't want to look into other people's interests as well as my own, right? That's consideration. This is the budding of wise love. And what does it look like? Go on. So it says this, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourself. Verse four, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of the others. This is the expression of God's love. Look at verse five. Your attitude, and this is where he proves it, your attitude should then be the same as Jesus, who did all of these things, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to or grasped or taken advantage of. But he made himself what? Nothing. This is the sacrifice. This is the expression, frankly, of Genesis 2. This, right here, is the picture of God beginning, looking down at Adam one moment before giving him breath and saying to Jesus, have you taken this into consideration? Are you ready to express love wisely? Are you ready? If we were to go to Luke chapter 2, what do we see? We see this consummated, right? So turn to Luke 2 real quick. Verse 7. Oh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. I would encourage you to be in it. We're in it a lot, okay? And I got nothing to say, so this is God's stuff. So here we go. Verse 4 says this, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, in Judea, to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a what? Child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling close and placed him in a manger sacrifice having laid, laid down his glory having put down all things God he again sacrifices see his sacrifice would continue throughout his lifetime his sacrifices would continue throughout his lifetime and what I want to look at today is one colossal sacrifice that we don't understand. You ready? Turn to John 16, if you would. John 16. Hey, Twani River, can you do me a favor? Can you meander down here for a moment? Okay, awesome. All right, so we're in um, chapter 16 of John. Stop for a minute. Look at the person next to you. Just honestly, look at the person next to you. Look at them and say, hi.
I'm really glad you're here. Ready? Now, ask the person, what do you think, what do you think of this so far? Go. All right, you ready? Remember, this is church. This is not talking head time. Church means we also talk to one another. We share with one another what we're learning or what we're not learning yet. So, John 16, you ready? Here we go. Hold on. So, we're going to start at verse 5. And if you were to read John chapters 14 through 16 up to this point, we see that Jesus is beginning to tell the disciples that he's leaving them. That he's doing what? That he's leaving them. This is really, really important for us to grasp. Because this, again, is an expression of Jesus' sacrifice. That being said, turn to your notes for a moment, if you would. And just follow along very quickly. You ready? It says this. God, Jesus, loves us wisely, if not mysteriously. We do not deserve the mercy of God, the grace of God, or the love of God. Part of this wise love is, is purposely expressing it to us at all. Let alone when we least deserve it. As if we've ever deserved it. Now, what you're going to see along in every paragraph, there are verses for you to go at home and read. Please do. Please go feed yourself. In order for his love to be what it is, this is, this is going to follow me. For, for, in order for his love to be what it is, to do what it does, it must be what it is. Love unmerited. Love for no other reason than he loves us. That is love. And that is wise love. And Jesus demonstrates for us a mysterious wisdom, a paradox of this wise love, loving us enough to go away. Doesn't that seem strange? Doesn't that seem weird? All right. Anthony, stand up for a moment if you want. This is my son, Anthony. Say hi, Anthony. <laughs> Thank you. Be polite, would you? Okay, all right. So Listen. Hold on. Now, just so you know, I married my wife for genetic purposes, obviously. <laughs> Hair, height, I figured with my build and her height, this is what we'd get. And it costs us a lot of money to feed this thing, okay? <laughs> Listen to me. As a parent, I love my children. I adore my children. I wrestled with them, I played with them, I got on the floor with them, I did things with them, we learned things together. He and I cut out lots of steel pipe this week and then we put plastic pipe in and we sweated together in a hot attic and we just did stuff, guy stuff. That's what we did. We even grew beards together. Because <laughs> that's what guys do. Love him. You know where he lives? Tennessee. You know what I hate about that? Everything. Because you know what I love even more than Anthony? His wife and children. <laughs> See, in our world, in our flesh, when we have children and we love them, what we plan is that they build houses all the way around our house. And when they have children, they stay right here with us. And then we get to enjoy their company. We get to be with them. We get to love them. We get to enjoy this. All the investment. All the calories spent. Everything. I would long to just hold him and keep him. And to suck Molly in and the girls and say, no, you're ours and you're staying with us. Because that's how our love works. That's how my love works. But you know what wouldn't happen if, that, if my love overcame wisdom? He would be stunted and ineffective and unproductive. He would not be able to grow into what it is God has made him to be. He would not be able to accomplish the things that God created him to accomplish. He would not be free to do the things that he is meant to do. He, is, he, he, he could not extend 
the kingdom of heaven the way God has created him to extend it. If what I said was, no, you stay with me. See, love in my head and love to my flesh is no, we hold on to this. But wisdom begins to recognize that the, the most effective way to parent is not to hover over them and to make sure that everything is fine and then to connect them to me and to never let them go. But in fact, to invest in them in such a way as to build character, as to allow Christ to be formed in them, to, to, to foster everything we can in them so that when they go, they impact their world. They bring the kingdom. And the best way for them to do that is not be by being attached to me, but for them to be able to go away. Or for me to leave them. That's what my love wants to hold tight. Wise love says, go. Don't leave your wife by yourself, come on. So we experience this love. Right here on earth in the context of our relationships. We are called to take into consideration what is best for those we've invested in. What is best for those we have built into. What is best for those who have been created by God to do what they are supposed to do. We've been called to do that. What's really neat is God demonstrates it for us. So read on in the notes with me if you would. It is better for you that I go away. Jesus' declaration of his departing and it being good for all was a humble, sacrificial, and loving act of wisdom and genuine care for those he loved. You see, Jesus' humanity might say, I would cling, and I could cling, and I, want, I, do, I cannot grieve you, but his wise love would know otherwise. So instead, Jesus declares, but alas, it is not good for you that I remain. That's, doesn't that seem ridiculous? That Jesus would say, it's better for you that I, Jesus, God, in the flesh, go away? In fact, it is better that he would go, but why? This is what we need to understand in terms of Jesus' love and his wisdom. Jesus was one man in one body and one place in time. And in so, he was limited in scope and therefore limited in power. It almost sounds sacrilege, doesn't it? That we would say God incarnate, that Jesus, who is being God, would be limited. But here's the thing, I'm not saying it. You know who said it? He did. When it says that he made himself nothing, that he, even though he was in nature God, he did not hold on to that or take, take advantage of it, but instead, or use it for his own advantage, but instead he laid it down and became what? Nothing? In the nature of a servant? He right then said to all his glory, to all of his power, to everything that he had as his finger, he said no. And he put it down. And this was an expression of his wise love. Well, why? He was sacrificing his glory. He was sacrificing his position with his father. He was sacrificing all that he knew to do what? To walk among us, to demonstrate for us God's love, to be a tangible example of the Father's heart, to express to us righteousness as God understood it and God desired it and God had intended for us. Jesus, one man, one body, one place and time, was limited in scope and therefore limited in power. But the one who would come, the Holy Spirit, is and would be unlimited in every aspect of time, space, and influence. See, Jesus isn't doing this alone. He's doing it with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is a community effort. Jesus is certainly, if he was proud, could say, no, I'm gonna do, I'll do it all myself. But what's awesome is, is he limits himself, and his limitation became the Holy Spirit's invitation. And he, cooperating beautifully with his Father, having submitted himself to his will and his wisdom, came and walked among us out of love and grace and mercy and a demonstration of God's heart. And then there was a point when he recognized that his work was done. And he said, in order for this work to continue and to work to continue as powerfully and as effectively as it needs to, I must go and I must send another. This is powerful. And this is wisdom. And listen, this is love. I want us to think about something. Let's go back to the first Adam. And we're going to talk about this more this fall because we're going to dig into Genesis chapters 2 through 4 this fall. But this is what I want us to see in the moment. 
Adam was created by God and he walked with God. Can you imagine how awesome that must have been? Later in Genesis 3, it says God walked along in the cool of the day and called out to him. They knew one another. They talked with one another. They walked. They worked. See, there was a moment in time when God and, G- when God and Adam were, were in the garden and they were together. And God looked at Adam and said, mm, you know what? It's not good for you to be alone. Adam didn't say, I'm alone. Adam didn't say, I feel lonely. In Adam's mind, he was not alone. He had who? He had God. But God said, no, you're alone. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you a suitable helper. It's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make for you a suitable helper. So what did he do next? Anybody know? Made him a helper, right? No. That's not what he did next. God is wise. You and me, we'd have just gone ahead and made the suitable helper, right, Brian? Right, right, right? Brian, you're alone. I'm going to get you a helper. Boom, there he is. Ah! God is wise, though, and his love is wise. And so God didn't say, I'm going to make you a suitable helper and then make the helper. You know what he did? He sat Adam in the middle of the garden. He said, I'm going to bring you all the animals. I'm going to ask you to name them. Everything created, I'm going to bring before you. I'm going to watch and listen to what you name them. You know what? None of them were named. Woman. You know what? None of them were named. Helper. You know what? None of them were named. Eve. Do you know what happened at that moment to Adam? When he realized for the first time that he was the only one of his kind in all of creation? When he realized that in the entire universe, the entire created universe, he was the only one? Do you know what came crashing down at Adam at that moment? Exactly what God had said. Alone. Alone. Crushed by the knowledge of being alone. What a cruel thing God would do. Yes? Or is his love wise? Come back in September for the answer to that one. As for now, I want to look at the second Adam. Who is the second Adam, according to Romans? Jesus. Let's talk about friendship for a minute. Brian, come here for a minute. You look alone. Your hair matches mine almost. It's not had as many years to run away as mine has. Here's the deal. Thing about friendships is there's a camaraderie built. There's a relationship that's established. There's a, a love and affection and, and this, this, just this, this desire to walk together and be together and do together and everything that comes with it. I want us to think about something for a moment. I want us to think about Jesus. And I want us to think about Jesus being both God and man. And I want, to think about, I want us to think about this. What must it have been like for Jesus to be on the earth and be the only God and man? Go sit. Okay, here we go. Ready? So not only with, but within. See, the Holy Spirit indwelling all of men and women who will believe, the intimacy the disciples had shared with God in Christ, here with him, was wonderful and oh so necessary for what it was. To see and to know Jesus, God, in a form they could touch and relate to. To see God's merciful love expressed through him. This was certainly fantastic, but now with Jesus leaving, that intimacy with God, now by the Holy Spirit, would actually increase. That as they have believed and obeyed the truth, God would not merely dwell dwell with them, but God by his Spirit would now reside within them. Jesus, who made his dwelling among us, would now, along with the Father, by the Holy Spirit, make their dwelling within us. Those who trust and love and obey, and thus empowering us wherever we are, equipping us to accomplish all that we are to do 
everywhere that we go. Now, not only Emmanuel, God with us, but now because Jesus has left, having become children of God, we are indwelled by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is God in us, guiding our hearts, guiding our minds, guiding our souls, and the spirit of the man constantly in the way that they should go, ever-present, ever-leading, ever-loving, wisely, not only so, but convincing us of the truth and the truth, that Jesus is who Jesus is, and we are to God in Jesus what God says we are, his children. This is what would transpire. Now, go to John 16. Ready? Here we go. So we're going to start at verse 5. It says, but now I'm going to, no. Now Jesus, again, chapters 14 and 15 have talked about the fact that he's going to be leaving and that they need to remain in him. And now they're confused because I'm leaving, but now you have to remain in me. I don't get it. Now he's, now he's emphasizing the point. He says, but now I'm going to, 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 the one, to him who sent me. None of you asks me where you're going. Rather, you are filled with what? What are you filled with? Look at it. Look at the passage. You are filled with what? Grief. You are filled with grief. Well, why? Because he's leaving. I told, our flesh does not want departure. Our, our flesh doesn't want go away. Our flesh doesn't want separation. Our flesh doesn't want that. Our flesh wants what we know and what we're comfortable with and what we like. Our flesh wants what we can touch. And Jesus said, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask where you're going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. See, Jesus' sacrifice began well before the cross, and it was on our behalf, and he loved us. He loved us and selfishly could have stayed to enjoy that love and adoration. He loved us and selfishly could have avoided the cross and its implication of suffering and death and separation. He could have, but he didn't. Brian, come back up here now, because here's the point. Come on, Brian, put your gear down, get over here. Jesus, the second Adam, was alone. I can't even imagine what must have been in the mind and the heart of Jesus as he walked among us and recognized that though he was fully human, he was also God. And he was separated from his Father except through prayer and by the presence of the Spirit. And he was really, though with humanity, was separate from them in the sense that he was God. And in that moment, he was alone. He was the only one. Much like Adam must have felt the moment he recognized there is nothing on earth like me. Jesus also walked among us suffering. In Isaiah 53, he says he was a suffering servant and he was inflicted. He was, ah! How alone must he have been? And if I am that alone, you, you know what I don't want to do? Go away. I don't. The wrestling match for him to go back to his father and be united, but to leave those he has developed a relationship with and loved and invested in and all the things. But he knew to truly love those who were with him, to truly love his father, he had to obey the will of his father, submitting himself to that wise counsel, and then saying to his brothers, who he did not want to leave, certainly did not want to grieve, and say to them, it is better for you than I go. As badly as I want to stay. Paul reiterated this when he said to, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it was with Jesus and he stood alone in all the universe. Here, ah, I want us to see that Jesus' sacrifice started way before the cross. And his sacrifice was an expression of his love because that's what love is. And it was wise in its effect, and it was wise in its substance, and it was wise in what it did and what it does. Isn't that beautiful? This is God's love for us. And you know what it is? Listen, completely unmerited. I think the hardest thing for, for anyone, any human being, is to listen is to believe that God loves us and to receive it for what it is. That's why Jesus stripped back all the religion, all the do's and don'ts, all the stuff, and he said, listen to me, the work of the faith is to believe in Jesus, to believe in the one that the Father has sent. That's the work. You know why it's so hard? Because we can't believe it's true. It cannot be true. And yet it is. And it is his sacrifices that demonstrate its beauty. 
Isn't that fantastic? That Jesus, over and over and over again, would sacrifice himself for the sake of the beloved. So we read on. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief, be grief because I have said these things. See, Jesus' love recognized his own limitations of both scope and effect. One body, one, one place, one time. Through, the, through his words, that though his words were the words of God, and that he was the truth that declares God's intentions, his effect was limited. Go to verse 7. He says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. It is for your good that I'm going away. Jesus' love for his Father and for the Spirit and for the lost compelled his submission to his own limitations, the, huma- the, the limitations that his humanity brought with, with it and to the, to the work of the Father and the Spirit. Jesus submitted himself to those things for our sake. And so though, though he would be the truth and speak the truth, it would not be Jesus who convicts the heart, the mind, and the soul of that truth. Jesus' sinless, unblemished life would be what qualified him to be the sacrifice for sin, would stand in stark contrast to the life of sin in this world, would be the embodiment of righteousness acceptable to the Father, a life of trusting faith and submission and love and obedience. But though his love stood in contrast to sin, his life and love had limited ability to convict the world of sin. So look, go back to verse 7 with me for a minute, because this sounds, this sounds like you're going, dude, you're, you're just, no, watch. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, verse 8, he will do what? He will prove the world to be wrong in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. What does this mean? That although Jesus was the truth and expressed the truth of God, although he was the expression of the mercy and the love and the, and the, and the, and the, the person of God, his life did not convict us of sin. What his life did was reveal our sin to us in the sense that it was contrary to that which God had. Only the Holy Spirit could convict of sin. How do we know that? How many times did we see Jesus preach and the multitudes came to faith? How many? How many? How many? You know how many? Zero. And in fact, you know what the multitudes usually did? Went away. 5,000 people, just men, along with women and children on top of that, followed him down the beach, waiting for him because they had fed, he had fed them bread and fish and had done this miraculously. And he turned to them and said, why are you following me? Do you want more to eat? I'm telling you, if you really want what I have for you, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You know how many of them went away? All but 12. What happened when Peter spoke at Pentecost? People didn't react angrily or in a disappointed fashion or just walk away and say, that guy's nuts. You know what, he did? You know what they did? They were pierced through to the soul. They were pierced through to the marrow. They recognized their sin. They were broken before God. And they said, what must we do? What must we do to gain? What do we have to do? Jesus came to demonstrate to the heart of the Father, the Holy Spirit, he had to leave. And when the Holy Spirit came and indwelled mankind, he, he, listen, the conviction of sin is an act of love. It's an act of grace. I'm convinced that Jesus hates bringing grief, but he also recognizes that conviction of sin is what gives life. For him to let us walk around with sin in our bodies that will lead us to damnation is like a doctor looking at an x-ray and seeing a tumor and not telling the patient. This is love and grace and it's the mercy of God and it's Jesus' sacrificial wisdom and love that demonstrates for us the very nature of the Father's heart. And he would get out of the way. He would sacrifice his relationships. He would sacrifice himself, having diminished his own glory, his own power, his own effect. He walks away and allows the Holy Spirit to come to do what? To save those he loves. That the work of Jesus Christ is for our redemption. And then the Holy Spirit comes and reveals that to us. Showing us what separates us from it, convicting us of it, confessing it now, and receiving what it is that he offers. That Jesus 
Jesus is the one who makes us children of God, and the Holy Spirit is what enables it. Isn't that beautiful? Or Jesus enabled it, and the Holy Spirit empowers it. Let's read on. Verse 8. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. That they don't understand sin and its destruction. They don't understand what actually, what type of righteousness God is looking for. And they don't recognize that all of this will lead them to condemnation and eternal death. The Holy Spirit will reveal all those things. He will teach all those things. He will convict the heart of those things. He will convince men that they need a salvation. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And it won't happen unless I go away. Even you will not know. Even you will not know. Go down to verse 12. See, we need to recognize that even the disciples were powerless without the Holy Spirit. And it would be the Spirit at that first preaching that would convict the listeners of their sin, even the sin of the crucifixion. And Jesus loved, and he loved well, and he loved wisely, and he said, I must go, so that the Holy Spirit could come. And this is love. The Spirit will convict men of sin. It will convince men of righteousness, that Jesus was not a criminal or an evil heretic or a moralist or a social reformer, but he was the Son of God and righteous and the source of our righteousness. That's the Holy Spirit's work. The Spirit will convince men. But the Holy Spirit will also be our guide and our companion. The expression, the very real expression of God in us. Not, listen to me, not just with us, but in us. Can we be disappointed? I'd love to have Jesus here with me. Fantastic. But you know what we have that the disciples didn't even have at the time? They might have had Jesus with them, but they didn't have God in them. We have God in us. That is the person of Jesus walking in our flesh in partnership with each one of us. Isn't that? And he knew that. And so he was willing to lay down everything for that very beautiful fact. Band, go ahead and get in place if you would. Verse 12. I love what Jesus says here. He says, I have much more to say to you about this. I can't wait. More than you can now bear. There's so much stuff. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into the truth, into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Jesus himself submitted to his Father and said, I don't say anything without having first heard my Father say it. Now the Holy Spirit says, I will come and I will finish the work, and I will only say what it is that you have said, Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The humility of our God, the wisdom of our God, the love of our, the prudence of our God. That Jesus knowing would hold back, realizing that the best way for it to be manifest in us is not for, him to, for us to hear him say it, but for the Holy Spirit to breathe it into us and through us. Isn't that crazy? That's God. He will glorify me because it is from him that he will receive what he, it is, it is from me that he, will, that, that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. What is the point? We have communion. We are celebrating, commemorating the sacrifice of our Jesus who loves us so much that he would be willing to sacrifice. And I want us to see that that sacrifice started way before the cross. That it goes all the way back when the plan was manifest, when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit began the garden. Having us in mind before time even started. And that Jesus walked among us daily sacrificing himself. Daily taking into consideration, who, daily being prudent and wise in his love. Daily showing us our value to him. Apex on the cross where it's demonstrated just how deeply and passionately he loves us, listen, and longs for us. And the Holy Spirit indwelling us now says, here I am. Amen? We celebrate an open communion. 
If you are a believer, if you have a, a child of God through Christ Jesus, we invite you to come forward. We're going to sing a song, and in the midst of the song, we're going to ask you to pray and examine our hearts, that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, would speak to us in a way that would remind us of any sin that we have, might need to confess or any relationship that we need to have a changed attitude toward. And as we have made those amends with the Spirit, we invite you to come down the center aisle to take the elements and back to your seat, and we'll take them together. And today, normally we would sing on the way out. Today we will not. Because what I'm going to ask you to do is to walk out together and spend some time in the front yard talking to each other. Be church for crying out loud. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. The simplicity of bread. This is the simplicity of the relationship we have with Jesus. Sometimes we make more of it than we should in terms of simplicity. Jesus simply loves us. No, stop. He simply loves us. And he calls us to stop complicating it. Stop it. Just let me love you. Receive it for what it is. He looked at each one of his disciples. He said, here's the deal, my friends. See this bread? This is my body. Broken for you. I love you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. And after the meal, he took a cup, and he said, it's this simple. This is the blood of a new covenant, something completely not only new, closing out the old, accomplishing what it meant to do, and now creating something new in my blood. I love you, and whenever you drink it, remember me. Amen? Father, this week, may we be a people who receive your love, who recognize the sacrifices you made, and who receive from you the very simple act of love. And then as we receive it, Lord God, as we receive it daily, fighting off the flesh's need and desire to somehow earn it, or to complicate it. May we then express that simple love to the person next to us. And if they're a brother or sister, that we would rejoice in being brothers and sisters. And if they're lost, Lord God, that we would bring that simple love, that wise love, that prudent love that you expressed, Lord Jesus, and laying down ourselves for the sake of our brothers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hug somebody and go out in the yard and talk to each other. Have a good week.